0: You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today.
1: How can we live well together? What gives life purpose? What about technology, education, faith, capitalism, work, family? Is another life possible? Plow exists to help people discover essential insights into the big questions of life through stories, ideas, and culture. When you subscribe to Plow, you join a living network of people working toward new ways of living that correspond to what human beings are here for in the first place. Plow is the only publisher inspired by a Christian vision for people who are open to fresh perspectives and who are looking for a more authentic communal way of life in a time of upheaval and change. Don't miss out. Subscribe to Plow today and you'll get your first issue of the magazine free of charge. Can't wait for you to join us.
2: Good afternoon and welcome live from the Sheen Center in Manhattan to the New York Encounter 2021. My name is Jonathan Liedel. I'll be moderating our conversation this afternoon titled A Desperate Cry for Justice, Seeking a Truly Human Path to Racial Justice. Before we begin, I just want to give a special word of thanks to Plough for their generous support in organizing this event. The killing of George Floyd shocked the world and it sparked a widespread desire to seek racial justice in America. However, it's been difficult to find a unified way forward, and often the conversation around racial justice seems dominated by ideology and influenced by political partisanship. Many of these approaches fail to meet not only the demands of justice, but also the the demands of the human heart, and many of us are looking for something else. Today, we are joined by three leaders in the movement for racial justice who, by their bold calls for justice and also their deep commitment to our shared humanity, are witnessing to a different way forward. So I'm very grateful and honored to be here with our guests, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I'll introduce them now, uh, and I remind everyone that if you'd like to see the full biography, you can visit the New York Encounter's website at newyorkencounter.com. So our guests, we have joining us from Washington, Washington D.C., Dr. Anika Prather, Dr. Prather teaches in the Classics Department at Howard University and has degrees from Howard, NYU, St. John's College, and the University of Maryland. She is also the founder of the Living Water School, a Christian school offering a classical education to a predominantly African-American student body, and she recently published her book, Living in the Constellation of the Canon, The Lived Experience of African-American Students Reading Great Books Literature. Welcome, uh, Dr. Prather. We're also joined by Reverend Eugene Rivers III and Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, who are husband and wife and live and work among the poor in the inner city of Boston. Dr. Jacqueline Rivers is the executive director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies. She holds a PhD in African American Studies and Sociology from Harvard where she has served as a lecturer and has also served as a doctoral, doctoral fellow in the Multidisciplinary Program in Inequality and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Rivers has worked on issues of social justice and Christian activism in the black community for more than 30 years. Welcome, Dr. Rivers. Thank you. Reverend Rivers is the Founder and Director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies. He received his education in philosophy at Harvard, and he is a widely published writer, lecturer, and community activist. He has also advised both the Clinton and Bush administrations on their faith-based initiatives, and Reverend Rivers serves as the pastor of the Azusa Christian Community in Dorchester. Welcome, Reverend Rivers. Right. So to begin with, uh, of course, the killing of George Floyd, the police killing of George Floyd and many other people of color in recent years has sparked a kind of renewed conversation in this country about racial justice but each of you in your own ways have been committed and working for this cause for a number of years so to start off um, and we'll start with you Dr. Rivers I'd really be interested in hearing from each of you on how you've experienced this desire for racial justice in your own lives what events throughout your life have had the biggest impact on you
3: So thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for the opportunity to be here for what is a very important conversation and one that is uh, all the more so in light of events in January, January 6th in particular. So I'm from Jamaica and I was already an adult by the time I came to the United States. And it was with some trepidation that I came for college. Uh, with the sense that the United States was a racist country. And I went to Boston, which uh, had the image of being uh, very racist given the busing crisis here. And while I was a freshman, I remember uh, that we were advised to stay out of downtown Boston because of the violence there. And what was the violence? Well, it was just around that time, I believe that um, a young football player was shot and paralyzed as a purely because of racial animus, shot and paralyzed. So that was my introduction to the United States. And that I think has been one of the uh, big events in in shaping my sense of racial injustice. But Jonathan, I think it goes beyond just that personal experience. It really is concern for the black poor I really felt strongly as an undergraduate that God was calling us to work on issues of justice and social justice, and that as a black person, I couldn't simply enjoy my Harvard degree and go on to business school and be wealthy and forget the poor, that I was intimately linked my identity was connected to theirs. And so we moved into a poor neighborhood in Dorchester, a poor neighborhood of Boston, which also turned out to be extremely violent. And seeing, living in the middle of this just plays up the importance of racial justice. These are really the things that I think have shaped me the most in terms of my concerns uh, for
2: justice. Beautiful, thank you for sharing. Dr. Prather, uh, what's been your experience?
4: I was a little very unique in that um, my first awareness that there was a problem um, went beyond just hearing about it, reading about it, knowing the history of it, but being um, a black child going to a predominantly white Christian school. And I endured quite a bit of racism in those experiences uh, under the love of the love of Christ. And so that's when I really began to feel a passion for racial reconciliation uh, based on the word of God, based on what God says about what our relationship should be with each other. Uh, my passion for showing the church should be the light in this, not the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went on to Howard University, um, where I became very involved with the impact movement that was led by Charles, uh, Dr. Charles Gilmer. And he really, his teaching and his discipleship, along with other people like James White, their discipleship, their leadership under us serving our people and serving humanity um, and bringing racial reconciliation based on truth and the word of god um, and then making us do things not just sit in the pew and hear about it but we were going into the community we were speaking we were being activists wherever we were placed and being held accountable for that um, and that, that college experience tied back to my childhood experience it did nothing but ignite a fire more so in me so that i became very committed that whatever i'm doing in my the field i've chosen was education i would be addressing this issue even if nobody knew my name like whatever school i'm working in wherever god is placing me i was going to speak on these things and that's just how i've just i've just made it my life's
5: work
2: beautiful thank you and what, what about you reverend rivers
5: uh, so let me sharpen this. I want to make sure I answer your question. So how has uh, my life experience uh, informed my concern with racial justice? Is that the question?
2: Well, maybe when when did this desire awaken you, right? Like something must have happened, right, for, for you to commit your life to this in such a bold way. So what can you think of an event or an experience or throughout well, your life?
5: Okay, I'll, I'll give you two. Uh, The first time I was living in Chicago, and uh, I uh, was chased by a group of young white boys who caught me and stomped me. I just got stomped uh, in Chicago. And this is a few years after the execution of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was from Chicago uh i'm in chicago um uh, they chased me i tripped and fell and then they stopped me brutally and that was um uh very interesting there was some white girl that i said this is teal i say hi to white girl's name was susan because hmm. i had two times I, was, I got laced up and um i walked um uh, buy her house on my way home. Uh, The young white boys say, what's that nigga doing here? And they chased me across literally a a railroad track. I stumbled. And then about five or six of them just stopped me till they got tired. And that was my sort of introduction to reality. Hmm. And what's important to note: this had nothing to do with my feeling. This was a fact. I got stomped by these white people. What I felt made no difference to anybody. Hmm. So feeling is is almost a luxury in this context. Hmm. That's the first time. Then the second occasion, uh, where uh, the two occasions I can list because they're related quickly. Um, When I was 11, I'm standing in my doorway, in my doorway. Not outside, not on the steps, not in the street, in my doorway. Two police wagons come up the street in Philly, and the guy says, uh, uh, get in the the truck. That's Mm. paddy wagon. You know, I say, sir, what did I do? I'm just standing in my doorway. Um, Nigga, did you hear me? Get in the truck. Or it's going to be worse. They put me in a paddy wagon no explanation for why I'm arrested, corner lounging in my door. I'm taken to uh, 35th District Police Department. They put me in a cell. I call my mom, devout Christian Bible believer, the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, professor, love the Lord Jesus, the whole business. Because on my the maternal side, our folk were real... On the serious Christian thing. Uh my mom comes and says, Well, why would you arrest my son? What did he do? Da 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 da. da. The officers then tell my mother, Nigga, if you don't shut up, we'll put you in the cell with him too. Mm-hmm. And that that's just like no feeling, no emotion. It was what it was. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last one, quickly, similar period. Um uh, I got arrested were sneaking on a bus uh, to go home from summer school. The police caught me. They took me to a police station. They locked me up. Then, we're there for an hour. They take me out of the cell, put me in a police car, and take me two miles into another gang territory and drop me off
6: Hmm.
5: and say, nigga, you're on your own. So those are my objectives. No, it ain't got nothing to do with how I feel. Mm -hmm. This is what it was. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I am not afforded the luxury to operate on how I feel. My feelings have nothing to do with any of this. Mm. Facts. And so this conversation, I'd like to talk about what's real. Mm. Because I lost my privilege and right to have an emotional feeling about any of this when I was six, seven years old.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: And that was a thousand years ago.
0: Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following Saint Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit NewYorkEncounter.org.
2: Well, we'll certainly get to that in our conversation. Uh, You know, I'm struck by by each of you sharing uh, these personal instances, right? But as Dr. Rivers, as you pointed out. It goes beyond just personal experience to widespread patterns in, in the culture and society, whether it has to do with business, economics, policing, and discrimination. So just given your your own personal experience, but also awareness, right, of, of kind of this entire context that we bring with us as we move forward as a country, what was the, the impact uh, on, on you personally when, when George Floyd was killed?
3: So... What struck me was this was just the worst so far in a long, long, long series of events like this. For as long as I've been in this country, and I came in '79, there's been a history of these events in Miami. Trayvon uh, uh, uh,
6: Martin.
3: Yeah, no, no. Before, well before Trayvon Martin, right? Um, Uh, There were riots in Miami because a man on a motorcycle was killed by the police. And that was decades ago. And then we've had just one series after another of these events. What is different in the current era is that now these are captured on cell phones. And so that was this was a horrendous crime. It was it was a heart stopping crime. To think that another human being, a a human being could kneel on the neck of another human being and just have him die under your knee while he pleaded for his life and called for his mother. That was just horrifying. But I really saw this as just the worst of what had happened so far. And the fact that this person was a police officer. I mean, he wasn't, a Nazi criminal, this was a police officer who was sworn to protect and defend. So the horror of it struck me, first of all, and the fact that it was part of this long series of events. And that really said to me in an era where now this is captured on cell phones and so you have uh, much more awareness of it. And white people weren't able to deny it as they had in the past, they couldn't justify it. This man hadn't done, I mean, he tried to pass a counterfeit 20. Who knows if he even knew it was counterfeit, right? Mm-hmm. White people couldn't, they had to confront it. This was, these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. And that um, even in this era where it's caught on cell phones, on videos, so many cases, officers simply walk. It takes so long for them to be charged. If they're ever charged, mm-hmm. very often they're not indicted. The grand jury, jury doesn't bring an indictment. And if they even are indicted, then they're found not guilty. I mean, the terrible events in Los Angeles that kicked off the riots in Watts. Uh, these are there was, you would have thought that there was no way that those police officers could have walked. Amadou Diallo in uh, New York, you would have thought there was no way that these police officers could simply have walked, been found guilty of doing nothing wrong, not even reckless endangerment. In the Amadou Diallo case, they shot 41 times into an apartment building where innocent people were. So, those were the that that really was how i was reacting when i saw this you know it was just both horrifying but very very sadly not surprising hmm.
2: reverend rivers and dr prather what, how did it impact you
3: Good, good Doctor. Uh, I,
4: I couldn't get over it like it was really hard for me to get over just i had to make myself stop watching the videos seeing him there seeing him crying for his mother, um, hearing about he was sort of a new Christian kind of trying to um, change his life around and hearing the testimonies of those who had been in ministry with him. Um, um, and as uh, Dr. Rivers says, it wasn't surprising. The only difference is we're catching these things on video because on my end, um, and this is just kind of a shout out to my brother who's my pastor now, but um, from the moment he got his driver's license, He has been stopped by police his whole life. And uh, my dad, um, who was also a professor at Howard, uh, and my mom have just a lot of wisdom on how they educated us biblically, but also historically on these these things. And so one of my biggest fears, I'm bringing my brother up because one of my biggest fears has been something like what happened to George Floyd, what happened to my brother. Mm -hmm. Because he could take a girl out on a date and he's coming, dad, they stopped me again. Dad, they said my windows are too tinted. I told him my windows aren't tinted. Then they told me to put my hands down. like it was like a constant recurring cycle. And he's your typical almost six foot chocolate African American male, you know. And so he he, I mean, it's so bad that he can pass a police car, and he'll say to himself if he's driving when I when he passes that police car, they're gonna stop me,
6: mm-hmm.
4: and they usually do.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: And it's the whole drill. And then he comes home or he calls my dad. And my dad says, son, did you keep your hand on the wheel? Did you, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Well, what George Floyd told, tells us is that it doesn't matter what you do.
6: Hmm.
4: You can, like after your parents, and it's the talk, it's the same talk that we hear about that black families give their children. I've had the talk Mm -hmm. um, as well. And so, you know, you think, you know, for a long time, you're thinking, okay, if I just do these things. I can be saved from this happening to me if I teach my children this. And so when we watch things like George Floyd, it's not just, oh, that's so awful. Oh, I can't believe they did this to him. There's a whole bunch of terror that just comes over you. I am the mother of two young sons, Hmm. ages eight and ten. My, my brother has a 12 year old son and an eight, a a seven year old son. Mm -hmm. And so he cried whenever this happens and he sees these stories, we both cry. We both get terrified because our sweet boys, you know, what if somebody just accuses them of something and this happens to them? So it, um, for me, what it triggered me, George Floyd triggered me, um, is a a really strong desire to make it stop. And I felt helpless. I'm like, how do I, how does little old me stop it? I'm not into politics at all. I'm not, you know, I'm just a little Christian education person, you know? And so what do I do? And so I began to think through and I began to talk with my parents, my husband, you know, what can I do? And that's when I decided to host, um, Uh, Protest called the Black Lives Funeral, where I just partnered with funeral homes all over DC. Mm. And we just drove around DC and shut the Maryland, DC area down on our side. And we had posters all over our cars. We held a public funeral with a decorated casket with all the lives who've been lost. And we keep a catalog at our website. And it's not, we're not, we don't do a lot, but it's just, this is what's happening on the website. You go and you just see all the lives lost to police brutality. We made an educational video to educate people on the George Floyd um, justice and policing bill Mm -hmm. that needs to be passed. It's just kind of, we're waiting on that. So it may not come to anything, but it just made me, when I saw George Floyd go through that, like that was just kind of the nail in the coffin for me. It was just like, I've got to do something before my children grow up before they are outside of my protection. You know, I, you know, and so that's what it did for me.
2: Reverend Rivers. What about, what about yourself?
5: Um, When I saw the George Floyd thing, I wasn't surprised. It was business as usual. Walter Scott was shot seven times in the back in South Carolina, running down the street away from the police. Walter Scott, Mother Emanuel, I mean, actually, George Floyd is an improvement over Mother Emanuel. A young white terrorist, a white terrorist, goes in the black black church praying, praying, prayer meeting. They welcome this demon into the church. He empties out in the church. Now, Walter Floyd Mother Emanuel, Walter Scott, uh, do down the list. The guy that was in the car in, I think, Milwaukee or Minneapolis, and they had it on camera. The cops murdered him with the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So for me, the thing that is most horrifying I'm not those, because that's standard operating procedure in this country, mm-hmm. and I'm just keeping it 100. Mm-hmm. So I'm off the emotions. I can't do the emotion thing, Mm -hmm. right? Because I want to understand it beyond emotion. What is the thing that is striking to me is the depraved indifference of so many white Christians. Mm
6: -hmm.
5: I had a conversation with a progressive white Christian from some very biblical thing. I was, in fact, the conversation was so disconcerting, I couldn't sleep half the night hmm. trying to process the horror of the indifference of the white Christian. That was worse Ooh. than the actual murder of these Black people. Hmm. So, so my pro- listen, we're going to get done like that. And it happens because the white Christians have not stepped up. See, we had this problem with King. This goes back to the Birmingham letter. Yes, yes. Making you white people to be civilized. King's in jail. And they complained about him. So there's no emotional response to me about these dudes getting shot. It's black. I got a son. Hmm. He got the rules as as soon as he can walk. Because that's the reality. So you can't have an emotional thing about that. Mm -hmm. What is the most pathetic thing? To me, and where you get my emotion is what appears to be a depraved indifference to do something. Mm. King been fighting with the white church about this and and, and there's reconciliation talk, Mm. but nobody puts the hips with the lips on this. Mm -hmm. In fact, the disgrace of Black Lives Matter is that Black Lives Matter exists because of the disgrace of the churches. Mm. Black Lives Matter wouldn't exist if the white churches had stepped up. And the black church, yes. I'm gonna let them off the hook too. So no, I'm not. You know, the emotional thing. Mm. You know, we can talk about that. I'll dig up an emotion. None of which makes any difference mm. because the reality is, this mother, uh, she's got to protect those young boys. And and the you know, the thing that's most amazing is to the the lack of any outcry from the progressive Christians. On January 6th, Hmm. they said it was race war and civil war. I thought there would be a vast outcry of all the peace and justice white people. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, and
3: and they, you know, it's really been happening for decades. I mean, it's been happening since slavery, Hmm. but just to give you two, uh, the details of two examples. So the Overtown riots in Miami were in 1980 a black motorist was beaten to death by four police officers after a traffic stop. But there were no video cameras there in 1980. Rodney King in 1992, there were video cameras and they still walked. Yes. They didn't manage to beat him to death, mm-hmm. but it, they beat him on camera and they still walked. Mm-hmm. And I, so I really, the, the thing that, I, I felt as my, as uh, Reverend Rivers was just saying, how important it was that Christians needed to speak out about this. So like Dr. Prather, I really wanted to be on record as a Christian as being opposed to this. And the most powerful way I could do that was by writing. Uh, so first of all, uh, my uh, our church had a press conference about this and the globe the boston globe here ran an article ran really in which it really captured some of my senses my sense of this situation and of the need for police reform mm-hmm. that this was just going to keep happening until there was some serious action on calls for police reform mm-hmm. and that led to an article that ran in religion unplugged really fleshing that out and the fact that as christians we We are called to act on justice. That to say that we love people, but not act for justice Mm -hmm. would be meaningless. Mm -hmm. And so that we have to be taking action. We have to be doing things. And that some of these problems cannot just be solved at the level of the individual, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just that you can go out. Yeah, if you see a young black man being harassed by police, take out your camera, try to intervene, try to save his life. Hmm. But you can't be there for every young black man who's being attacked by the police. Some of these issues have to be solved at the level of policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so really trying to put that in the, uh, you know, into the conversation from a Christian perspective but addressing the broader problem was the approach that we took. And that also led then to the article that ran in the plow, the interview that the plow did with us on this issue. Mm -hmm. Our desire is really to speak to the black church, but see the black church has a history of acting on these things. Do we need to do more? Yes. But we have a history of acting on these things. The people we really wanted to wake up, is a white church. Hmm. I want to say to the white church, you are called to do justice. You serve Jesus. Hmm. Jesus was about justice. He said to the Pharisees, look, you tithe dill and mint and come in, but you uh, you ignore the weight your matters, peace and justice and mercy. And where is the white church on these issues? Mm-hmm. Why are we not hearing their voice? And why don't we as black Christians speak more loudly? So a, a couple of other things I did, it's like, you know, there are all of these um, these massive uh, rallies. No, I'm just one person in 10,000, but I've got to be there. Yes, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I've got to be there. And so put on my mask, stayed on the edge of the crowd, but I was there. You know, we're kind of old to be out in the middle of a pandemic, in a in a big crowd in the middle of a pandemic, but I was there because I just felt compelled. I've got to do something, I've got to act. Mm-hmm. In addition to writing, I've got to act. And, uh, they, uh, and then I got there and I saw all of these signs and I was like, none of these signs are anything about Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get myself a sign <laughs> and I made myself a new sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christians Against Racial Injustice, and I was out there with my sign because I wanted people to know that Christians are standing up for this.
0: You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help head on over to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work.
2: Thank you for your support. Yeah, and I, I want to jump in here and ask about this because, I and I know uh, Dr. and Reverend Rivers in that interview with Plout, you, you pointed out that the response and the solidarity between whites and blacks in the restu- response to George Floyd's killing was greater and more significant than during the civil rights era. But but you also point out simultaneously that the, the Christian church, the white Christian church, is not stepping up. And I'm, I'm curious, and I'll ask you, Reverend Rivers, because I know you speak about racism uh, as having a spiritual component to it, right? And I'm wondering, what is what is lost when Christians vacate their rightful role in standing up for this type of injustice?
5: Let me share with you the next five to six years just like martin luther king said in 1962 look y'all we need to deal with this thing or we're gonna have riots Hmm. i'm the best thing you got please hear what i'm saying right they blew them off then 64 uh philadelphia Newark, Los Angeles. The churches refused to hear from the prophet. The country exploded. What I see is that the sins of the church now, the white church in particular, now, because the white church as a function of their white skin privilege have a political authority that black churches will not have. Uh, so, so so we're in for a very tough time because of our sin of when we should have spoken out pride loud and, you know, and exposed the sins, we did not. And then you see where things are going now. So let's go to the spiritual thing. I did an, uh, an article in Sojourners in 1998. It was a transcription of a talk I gave in 1996 at Virginia Commonwealth University. And it was entitled, Blocking the Prayers of the Church. And I argued, in the 10th chapter of Daniel, we've got the story of Daniel praying, uh, uh, trying to get a word. Uh, 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 The angel wants to uh, respond to Daniel's prayer, but he says, Daniel, at the point at which you sought understanding and humbled yourself, I heard your prayer but I was detained 21 days by the Prince of Persia, spiritual blockage. They're trying to get a breakthrough. And what I argued was that the principality and power of the United States, the demonic principality and power that blocks the prayers of this church in this country is white supremacy. And when righteous is I'm not talking about a skin thing. White supremacy is idolatry. I'm, I'm total Bible on this. When you elevate the image of the created above the creator, then you turn the created into the, to the creator by making yeah. God white, Jesus white, angels white, heaven's white, everything's white, right, in heaven. And yeah. that ideology perverts the spiritual integrity of the witness. Come on now. And so, so the argument was, basically, the United States is bound by a demonic principality, which has infected the entire white church and had an adverse effect on the black church. Hmm. Because many of us are sort of nervous about speaking out because we're worried about what the other boy says. So the the political crisis of the United States is uh, spiritual. It is the church's failure to engage in the intercessory spiritual warfare against the demonic principality of white supremacy yes. which affects everything and explains yes. to the disgrace of the church that in to this day yes. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, yes. Yes. which is the most damning indictment yes. of the entire church game. Yes. And the criminal silence, the white Christians could have stood up and challenged that terrorist insurrection, nothing. The white churches could have stood up when they went into Mother Emanuel. Yes. Right? They didn't. So listen, I'm look, look, killing black people. That's a day at the office. That's gonna happen in part because of the complicity of the white church. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. So any of you white people listening to this, I can't use your guilt. Your guilt don't do nothing for me or for black people. So if you're feeling bad. Please. I, I don't wanna make you feel bad. I don't I don't, I don't need your guilt. your guilt, don't pay no bills. This I'm here this afternoon to share not what I feel, but what the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. There you know, And I wanna
4: I really wanna, if you don't mind, I wanna piggyback off of what you're saying and um Because I want to talk about my experience going going to white Christian schools. And and so I went to some of the top Christian schools in the Maryland, D.C. area. They're all considered one of them is closed down now, but it was a very popular Christian school. And then the others are still in existence. And then every single I was in Christian schools from pre-K through 12th grade. Wow. (laughs) I endured horrible racism in these schools. I was taught in Bible class that God made black people inferior, that it was God's will for black people to be enslaved. It was through in our enslavement that we were saved from pagan beliefs. Um, I was just taught horrible things in there. I was taught that it is a sin for races to to intermarry, different races to intermarry. My mom and dad were, I always think, I think my dad did this. (laughs) He's very militant sometimes. So what he would do is he would show me scriptures. He said, you're going to this school. This is probably what they're gonna teach you. In that Bible class, you have to say this. So for example, he says, if they tell you that black people are cursed, you tell them, what you read the scripture back to them and let them know, no, no, Ham was not cursed. Canaan was cursed. And that was fulfilled in such and such and such a time. So, and it has nothing to do with white people at all. It was about the children of Israel. And it was, I mean, so, I, and, I, and I'm 10. So my father will spank you. So when my father says, when you when they say this to you, you go in there, you say such and such, you know, and my mom was constantly showing me you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So no matter what they say to you, I know people think we're crazy for putting you in this little white school, but we feel like we want to put you there. We feel like this is what God is telling us to do, but we're not having you go in there blindly. Mm -hmm. And so as a result though, my brother and I both, we were very much very vocal. Um, One of our schools would not allow us to have a gospel choir. A group of us wanted to start a gospel choir. We were told black music is a sin. Mm -hmm. And so we protested. We went to another white Christian school that had moved way out in Maryland away from black people but we, we were one of those few black people that found this school. We ended up going there and, and, and some other black families followed us. They expelled all of us. Parents had to protest. These are Christian schools. So I'm, I'm really um, picking back off of what, what Dr., uh, uh, Reverend Rivers is saying is because it really is beyond our emotion. Oh, this is how they're treating me. Like, it was like, this was business. And you know, this is what we have to do. My heart breaks though. That there seems to be a resistance to acknowledging that was happening. Mm -hmm. These teachers that taught me this way are still alive. Some of them are still teaching. Mm -hmm. They have children and grandchildren. Mm
6: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: I have talked to them as the sister in Christ. There was anger. They didn't want to receive my thoughts and I wasn't coming to make them feel guilty but I do want to say this type of behavior of, of not acknowledging the racism within the church. Mm. I fear for the church meeting Jesus in the state that it is in. Mm. Like A lot of us talk about, oh, I can't wait to Lord Coles, I can't wait to see Jesus. My thinking is like, OK, you, I don't think you're ready. I don't mm-hmm. think we're ready to see him. And, and the reason why we're not ready is because we're not dealing with racial reconciliation. The book of Revelations was written as a, as a warning to the church. Get your stuff together before I come back. And if we don't deal with race relations in the church, now I would love to change the world. I would love to see race relations get better in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And I, I get sometimes overwhelmed with that passion. I, I pray about it all the time. But one thing God began to show, with, show to me is start where you are. Where am I? I'm in the church. I'm a child of the church. My father's a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. All my uncles are pastors. All I know is the church life.
6: Mm-hmm. And so
4: that's where I can be. And another thing I have is my experience as a black woman going to white Christian schools. And literally every single one I experienced racism. Now, in those schools, did I have teachers that were loving who tried to live out Micah 68?
6: Mm-hmm.
4: Yes, I think it's Micah 6.8. I just looked it up, you know, to, to love <laughs> yeah. mercy. Um yes, I had them, but the leadership, the as a whole, as an organization there was silence people had to sneak and be nice and be you know nice to you uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a black person and so i had one teacher who because i remember one time she was saying you know it's a sin for races to intermarry and she's teaching this my father had already gone my mother and father had both taught me that what the scripture had said about that and i said well Moses married a black woman and I ended up in the corner. I, she put me in the corner. And so, you know, but these are things I had to go through. And so that, all of those experiences, me constantly, can we celebrate Black History Month? No, mm-hmm. we don't celebrate Black History Month. Or can we stop showing yeah. only white figures in the Bible? Especially when the, and, and I want, can I just deal with this? I'm going to be quiet. So if we're, <laughs> okay. Time, girl. If we're Christians and we believe the Bible is a true book of history, like mm. I believe the Bible is true. And some people think I'm crazy about that. I mean, I'm, I'm like, there's nothing about it that's false. You have to read it all in the whole thing from Genesis to Revelations to, for everything to make sense. If you you know, handpick different verses, it's not gonna make sense to you. So the Bible is true. I can look at the Bible. I can look at other anthropologists and historians who don't even know Jesus and say, okay, this thing happened in history. Okay, it's mad. it looks like it's true to me. And so I know the Bible is true. If we know the Bible is a true book of history. And we know that the Lord God wrote it identifying the geographic and et- locations of people and the ethnicity of people
6: mm-hmm.
4: how do we go through it how do christian publishers make every single person white in scripture hmm. I'm a, i have to go to i use christian publishers but i'm teaching black students i can't use most of the christian uh, education publications for my school Mm-hmm. Because none of them show my people. Mm. As, as a church, we have this book that is full of diversity, where you see Jesus, gra- the, the lineage of Jesus Christ, every single ethnicity is grafted into his genealogy. How do we read? And they say, and this person was from Jericho and this person was from here. Like we can see all the rainbow of people that are in the lineage of our Savior.
6: hmm.
4: How do you claim to know the Bible and go and make everybody white? And I'm not, I'm not a supporter of making everybody black. We don't have to make it up.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: It's in the Bible. Like we could just say, okay, this person's from here. Okay. That thing that's modern day Iraq. Okay. This person should be tan. Okay. This person, okay. That's Africa. I think that's somewhere near Ethiopia. This person's mm-hmm. probably chocolate. You know, mm-hmm. if this person was from Greece, they probably look white or European. So like we can, the Bible tells us how everybody looks. And so when I bring that bring when I bring that argument to my my non-black brothers and sisters in the Lord, oh, you know, it's not all about color. It's not, you know, we all just one in Christ. Okay, if we one in Christ, show how show how God has made us one in Christ by putting all of us in the ark, putting all of us in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and 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 identifying that. Mm-hmm. And so um and, and it goes back to that wanting to elevate One over the other, and Black people do it too. We want to say, "No, Jesus was Black, and so and so was Black, and we better than we." That's not pleasing to the Lord either. Hmm. We're all one in Christ. God is no respecter of persons. This makes me look reasonable.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you said, it's it's uh, not all made up. It's based in history, right? So there is yeah. an ability to kind of go back and, and rediscover these things. I, yeah. my, my question... And certainly, and que- certainly
3: uh, one thing we can be sure of is that um, much of this is happening in the Middle East and they weren't blonde-haired and blue-eyed. So yeah. why is everybody... I, I, I teach Sunday school and I have to... Uh, Delete the angels from the because I'm like "Mm, all these angels are blonde. Yes, well, yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I I think historically there there have been different cultures have expressed these figures in their own context. But then the difficulty is when you have a a multi ethnic nation, right? Where yes. one group has been in power for a long time, just the the impact and the effect that they can have on those who aren't yes. represented in yes. the divine family. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if we can, cause we've got about 15 minutes left for our conversation. Um, so I'm wondering, we, we've detailed the failings of, of the church to respond adequately to racial injustices, not just these events, but the the kind of long arc that, that we've, yes. we've talked about. I'm wondering though, has the response from the mainstream, if you will, the non-Christians, because as many of you have pointed out, uh, there has been a significant response, but it's being yet led by young people, by secular people. Has that response been adequate, or are we missing something there? Reverend, Doctor <laughs> uh, Rivers, why don't we why don't we go back with you?
5: go ahead, Doctor Rivers.
3: So, so. Um I think it's been very impressive. I think there are lots of factors that uh, play into that. Uh, some of it is the frustration of the pandemic, uh, the anxieties that that has created. Some of it is, you know, the kind of, you're you're locked in and now suddenly there's a cause, a reason to get out. So the excitement, the, the, I, I don't want to suggest that everybody who is out protesting is, Uh, ready to lay their life down for the cause, right? I don't want to suggest that there's that level of commitment, but it has certainly given it um, a certain power. And we've seen that this kind of protest, that's part of what brought about the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65. So I am excited to see this kind of response. But what it has to go, it has to go further. Out of the protest and the Uh marches in the civil rights came important legislation. legislation. We've got to see the same thing here. And some of this, uh, you know, some of this is not so much at the federal level, but even at the state and local level, we have to see laws around how we hold police accountable change and that uh, is, that's a heavy lift.
6: Yeah. Mm.
3: And it certainly, and this, this I think comes back to what uh, Reverend Rivers was saying, that the church has a special role to play here,
6: mm.
3: both in pre, in intercession, because there's a spiritual dimension of this, which obviously the secular uh, forces, uh, young people are not going to see. And so we need the church to be working on that end. And then we need, really need wisdom about how this, This upsurge, I mean, uh, the the Occupy Wall Street didn't actually result in any concrete changes. Mm. We want to make sure that this actually results in concrete changes. Now, here in Boston and Massachusetts, there have been laws passed around police reform. So we want to see that kind of momentum go forward.
2: And Reverend Rivers, you you've said that the national conversation on on this issue has been uh, been corrupted by national media. So I'm wondering what what's the problem right now that you see in the national discussion about racial justice and what is an adequate conversation look like? What are we missing?
5: Uh, Okay, a couple of things. Well, I'll answer that last question first. The white churches should make a decision to follow Jesus on the basic principle of justice. Look, Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Booyah. That's his inaugural address. I'm here in my political agenda, you know, good news to the poor, freeing captives, recovery cover sight to the blind. That's his agenda. That's his revolutionary agenda. So that, that's, that's the church piece. Um, I, I need to say something quickly about the Black Lives Matter. Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Lives Matter game has done great good. A lot of young people, very sincere, very earnest, and it brought global attention to an issue that if you had waited on the white churches, it had never showed up. Mm. So secular people actually were moving closer to what Jesus says in terms of looking out for the poor over and above the white churches. Uh, and now the, uh, the 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 downside and the opportunity for the churches, the Black Lives Matter thing is being financed by the transgender gay community. Mm. They're underwriting the whole game. The fact that this has become a totally commercialized ideological fashion uh, uh, fashion item, you got Black Lives Matter everywhere, everywhere, everybody, every major corporation. And the back story is that. The gay, transgender community understood that the best way to market their agenda was to wrap it in black people. The Black Lives Matter thing. See, the gays say that being transgender is the new black, which is just a racist lie. That's, and, and, and the deep thing is, the churches, because of our failure on race, hmm. another group has hijacked the black thing and it's now running it,
6: mm-hmm.
5: unbeknownst to the churches
6: mm-hmm.
5: and you can track the marketing who's financing and funding this thing. The human rights agenda group, that's the big national transgender gay thing. They are underwriting black lives matter.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And, so- and the churches. Uh, and, and so that's a challenge uh, that we eventually have to get to, but please bear in mind, we track this carefully Hmm. The underwriting and the financing, because what happens is Black Lives Matter was somewhere one day that all of a sudden exploded. It was everywhere. Coca-Cola, National Football League, NBA, everybody in the mama was Mm -hmm. on Black Lives Matter because had it been financed. That didn't come out of nowhere. And the churches have to be more vigilant and alert. Mm -hmm. And uh, last thing, at some point. There needs to be among a small group of your leadership, Jonathan, a conversation about whether or not we're prepared to have the theologically adult conversation about these issues. I'd like to come talk about my feelings, you know, but (laughs) at some point, the white churches have to decide whether or not we're going to follow Jesus Mm. for real, for real.
0: Mm -hmm. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate, and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
2: So with with about maybe for the next five minutes, I'd love to hear from each of you about We've talked about the failures of the church. We've talked about the inadequacies of a secular approach. What does an authentic uh, path forward to racial justice and racial reconciliation look like? What is maybe one thing, two things? Yeah, we'll go to uh, Dr. Prather and then Dr. Rivers.
4: On Black Lives Matter, I will say that... I know when I when we did our protest, it was not a Black Lives Matter thing. It was a very church-based thing, very scriptural. We were very focused right. on representing right. the Lord when we did ours. And um, my brother preached a sermon about what God feels about justice. It was just a really beautiful um, a moment. But Black Lives Matter, even though they knew we weren't a Black Lives Matter event, they sent flower, a wreath of flowers, to honor the lives of yeah. the. And I appreciated them doing that. And even though we may have different um, spiritual backgrounds, different viewpoints on some of the things you shared, uh, Reverend Rivers. Um, I think one of the reasons why, and and, and sometimes people uh, get frustrated with me about not being more vocal about how different we are mm. in our spiritual standing. My, oh, no. You're on.
2: We can hear oh, you, good. Dr. President.
4: Yeah. Um, OK, thank um, you. Is because I, I have a hard time complaining when the church has been silent. No. No. So black lives matter. These women chose we're not going to be silent. We're going to do something. Now the fact that it took fire and went to other places all I can say even though I, you know, have different of opinions we we were sitting here saying and, and I get I struggle, especially with the white church. And that's why I'm very careful to speak against Black Lives Matter, because a lot of times white churches will complain about their different spiritual values to discount the work that they're doing.
5: Hmm. Come on, child. And I think you, girl.
4: And I think that's the danger. I hope mm-hmm. I can still be heard.
2: Yeah, we can yes. hear
4: you. Yeah. Hello?
2: Dr. Yes, yeah, here you. yeah, you're here. Dr. Rivers, let's go to go to you here. A couple minutes then I'll have one more question.
3: OK, so I think that uh, what's really imp- one of the really important things is getting out of our echo chambers, because I think what has been really destructive about cable news and uh, the way the culture has developed some of the right wing talk radio is that people are only hearing. <laughs> everyone knows this. People are only hearing from the people that they agree with. Mm. Well, Psychological studies show that in that situation, our positions get more and more extreme. Add to that the political reality of gerrymandered uh, congressional districts, which means then that you have the most extreme politicians being elected and it becomes almost impossible to be a moderate. So so we're on this upward spiral of Mm. polarization. And I think reconciliation is not going to be it is not going to result from that we've got to begin to listen to one another to listen across political differences across racial differences that's when we can begin to work towards reconciliation and the role that some self-avowed christians played in storming the capitol on january 6 hmm. is also really important parading the uh con- the flag of the confederacy through the halls of congress the flag, uh, the flags of a traitorous state of traitorous states. How do we address this? I think these are the issues that we have to engage. Mm. And as much as I don't agree with the Biden administration on their position on human sexuality or on religious freedom, I am hopeful that at least the fact that this is someone who is more moderate that uh, this administration may in fact create some space for there to be reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But we, the church, we really have to model it. Martin Luther King Jr. preached about love. He opposed justice in a nonviolent way that affirmed the importance of love. We need to do the same. We're not going to get reconciliation without love. Yes so that there can be room for real forgiveness as yeah. well as repentance.
2: Yeah. Final question, because we only have a, a few minutes for you. I'm just listening and, and hearing from all three of you, um, a great amount of righteous indignation, I think is the the scriptural term that we would use uh, for these injustices and also for the complacency of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the same time, just getting to know the three of you over the past week or two, I know there's a lot of, an immense amount of hope too. And even to, to come back like you just did, Dr. Rivers, and to speak about love, yeah. like we're not hearing that in the mainstream. Yes. So I'm just just curious, kind of as a final word for us, how how are you able to to still your heart not to be hardened after these experiences? You know, Reverend Rivers, speaking of being stomped on, how how are you able to have a heart that can still hope and love in the pursuit of racial justice? What have you found that allows you to do that?
3: No, um, my faith is central to that. The only source of of hope is really in my faith and in uh, seeing the success of people like the civil rights movement. Hmm.
4: Can I speak up?
2: Yeah, Doctor Brother. And
4: then, and yeah, uh, the mine is my faith. Just the fact that Jesus you know, ran after me and died on the cross for me when I was so unworthy. Um, how dare I judge anyone outside of that? And mm. so, and matter of fact, I'm not supposed to be judging. I just read in my devotions this week where Jesus said, eternity will take care of all of that. All we can do right now is just love people. This is before I'm sorry about my Internet. I don't know. It's never happened before. But um, my wanting to speak about Black Lives Matter, how we relate to them, how we relate to the gay community, how we relate to black, you know, how we're dealing with relating to white people who we feel may have hurt us through racism. Everything has to be rooted in love. James Baldwin talks about that in his book, The Fire Next Time. He talks about the trials that we go through as a people. He said, but at the root of it, we've got to love each other.
2: Beautiful. And we'll go, Reverend Rivers. Give us, uh, give us one minute to close us out here.
5: Oh no, I think you know I, I've been pretty intense and fairly lengthy, right? So I'm good. The the women have said it. It is mm. the love of God. It is faith. The only game left is the game of faith and love. Mm. Now if we can get to churches, yeah, you know, to put their hips with the lips <laughs> on the love thing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. We'll be all right. Yes.
6: Yes.
2: Beautiful. Well, I want to thank uh, the three of you for, for joining us this afternoon and really sharing uh, from the heart and also from your expertise on such an important topic. And I hope it does inspire, um, you know, not just nice ideas and nice feelings, Reverend Rivers, but uh, but action as well. So thank you so much. And praise thank, God. Praise, God bless
5: you, Donovan. Thank you God very
2: much. Uh, we, we want to give thanks again to Plow for helping to organize this event and for everyone who has watched it on YouTube. And just a reminder that the live streaming will resume at 4 p.m. Eastern time with Lessons Learned, Witnesses on Education in a Time of Pandemic. And also a reminder that you can support The Encounter by going to the website, which is NewYorkEncounter.org. I think I said .com before. It's .org. And click on the menu and then click Donate. Thanks again to our guests and thanks to everyone else who's tuned in.
1: How can we live well together? What gives life purpose? What about technology, education, faith, capitalism, work, family? Is another life possible? Plow exists to help people discover essential insights into the big questions of life through stories, ideas, and culture. When you subscribe to Plow, you join a living network of people working toward new ways of living that correspond to what human beings are here for in the first place. Plow is the only publisher inspired by a Christian vision for people who are open to fresh perspectives and who are looking for a more authentic, communal way of life in a time of upheaval and change. Don't miss out. Subscribe to Plow today and you'll get your first issue of the magazine free of charge. Can't wait for you to join us.
0: Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.